some of those are smart people um, that believe that it would be easier to take a planet like Mars that has basically no atmosphere and turn it into another Earth. I would propose that it's going to be a lot easier and a lot cheaper to just take care of this planet. Um, actually, you know, we don't even have to take care of the planet. The planet's going to be just fine. It's us that are going to have a problem. A month ago, the United States celebrated the 50th anniversary of the historic Apollo 11 moon landing. It was a giant leap for mankind, and it introduced humanity to our own pale blue dot in a completely new way. 50 years later, many people wonder, if we can get to the moon, surely we can fix environmental issues here on Earth. In this episode, we get astronaut Scott Kelly's perspective on fighting climate change, having seen the challenge we're up against from space. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and beyond, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Going to space gives you a unique perspective on life, or at least that's what they say. I haven't been. Astronaut Scott Kelly, however, has spent a whole lot of time in space, 520 days to be exact. And upon his return from a continuous one-year mission, scientists were keen to study the impacts of space flight on his body and compare the results to his identical twin, astronaut and politician Mark Kelly, who remained on Earth. Scott, meanwhile, has spent some of his time, both in orbit and here on the ground, studying the impacts of humanity on the planet. He's tweeted out photos from the International Space Station showing pollution-covered landscapes and massive icebergs that have melted off and floated away. He's shared images of what he labels Earth-vital signs and has called for political leadership to protect the planet. The political climate team sat down with Scott Kelly to discuss technology, politics, and the unique perspective that traveling to space offers on the climate crisis. We also asked if he'd ever run for office, like his twin brother Mark, husband to former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who is currently campaigning for Senate in Arizona as a Democrat. In this show, you'll hear from my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat of the podcast, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama, and Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And you'll hear a few references to the governor in this show, which would be Governor Schwarzenegger, who we're lucky to have supporting this podcast. We recorded the interview with astronaut Kelly a few months ago at the Austrian World Summit in Vienna. And you can listen to our episode with Governor Schwarzenegger and climate activist Greta Thunberg from that event in the Political Climate Archives, available wherever you get podcasts. And with that, here's our conversation with Scott Kelly. So you spent more than 500 days in space, and we want to get into uh, climate change and what you took away from that experience. But first, I actually just wanted to ask you, what is it like to be in space? So it's a, uh, an incredible experience. It's a privilege. It's um, an amazing experience when you launch into space, especially the first time you do it. Uh, in my case, was on the space shuttle. It's uh, 7 million pounds of thrust all uh, you know, applied to your spine instantaneously. 
Oh God, I, I get I get nervous in like turbulence. Yeah. I cannot even imagine what that's like. Yeah, you're a little nervous, maybe, especially for it's something you've never done before. I think the last time I was probably less nervous because it was my fourth flight, my second time on the Soyuz. But uh, there's still, you know, there's always apprehension. When you get to space, you're uh, kind of overwhelmed by the view of the Earth, how incredibly beautiful our planet is. Floating is fun, but it um, makes most things more challenging to do. Also, our physiology was not uh, did not evolve to live in microgravity, so it's not particularly comfortable. You always feel like you're uh, adapting to it, but never quite get completely adapted, even after uh, I was in space for my last flight, 340 days. But the best part about it, I think, is is doing something that you feel very uh, uh, passionate about, something you think is important, something that has tremendous risk if you don't do your job properly, and then being able to work on that as part of a team. And uh, uh, not just the team, you know, that you're in space with, but also the people on the uh, on the ground that are very, very critical to our mission. So, Scott, we talk a lot about how do you communicate something that's difficult to see? And I know that you've done a lot of work on that. My question for you would be with Republicans on on my side of the aisle, it's very difficult to get them excited about climate change like you might even about other, you know, toxic pollution issues whereby their communities are directly affected. So I guess my question is, when you were zoomed out that far, what were you able to see that if you could explain to someone, they would fully grasp the challenge that we're up against and understand the severity of of what we're doing here? Mm -hmm. So we are on the space station. We're generally about 250 miles away from the Earth, so not that far. Um, But you're going really fast. You orbit the Earth every 90 minutes. So, you know, from a a physics perspective, you're you're pretty far away. But, uh, you know, you don't have the view of the Earth that uh, the astronauts that went to the moon had, for instance. You know, you're not looking at this small blue marble in the blackness of space. You're looking at this giant... Uh, blue ball that is uh, just an incredibly brilliant uh, thing to look at, but also scary. And the stuff that's scary about it is, um, you know, when we're here and we, we look up in the sky, you think the sky is like infinitely large. When you look down at the planet from space, our atmosphere looks like a thin film over the surface, like a contact lens over somebody's eye. And when you're flying over parts of the the planet um like particularly in like asia or central america and uh you know india also um you see a lot of pollution in the air there are parts of uh eastern southeastern china that and parts of india that are almost always covered in pollution and then you realize because you know you've thought about this and you've done some research that the United States is the second biggest polluter in the world. It's just not the type you can see. You know, it's, it's, it's greenhouse gases. It's not particles in the atmosphere. So when you see the biggest polluter, China, and you can see a lot of that pollution, but you recognize not only is there that, but there's all this other pollution going into the atmosphere. It has to have some effect, right? This atmosphere is very thin and fragile looking. And you're dumping massive amounts of of pollution into it. And then the data, I mean, has showed us that we are at this critical point in uh, the the temperature of the planet elevating. 
whether that's all due to human um, causes, probably not all of it. But you know what? The only part we can control is the human part. We can't control a volcano. I mean, if we ever get the ability to do that, then we've come a long way. But the part that we have control over, we have to do something about. And then there's the issue, I know the governor talks often about pollution, and I think pollution is often overlooked. But when you see, like, the polluting of the oceans, I was in Bali recently, and, uh, you know, a beautiful place, but there is massive amounts of pollution in the waters. When you see, like, you know, whales and dolphins and, you know, sea mammals dying because they're filled with plastic, I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing to this planet? I mean, we have, we have an incredible capacity to do good. And we need to. We can do amazing things. You know, you're flying around on this uh, $100 million space station, and you realize, you know, this is the most complicated thing we've ever done. And if we can do this, we can do other things. We just have to make up our minds to do it. It's interesting. Um, you know, we, in the climate world, we use uh, analogies like we need a moonshot. Uh, Secretary Chu and President Obama said we're in a Sputnik moment. Do you think those are fair comparisons? You know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I, uh, I listen to the experts, and the experts say what you just said. So at some point, I think that kind of effort is going to be required, whether it's right now or next year or five years. I don't know. Um, but uh, I think we have to do something uh, because if we don't, you know, we think it's expensive now. You know, imagine where we have all these climate refugees, people that don't have food and water because of climate change, uh, people that, uh, you know, parts of the world that, you know, are now under the sea, islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that are going to disappear. That's going to be really expensive. Now, I think we could do it a lot cheaper. You know, it's, I think it's pay me now or pay me a lot more later and, uh, and also deal with the, the number of people that are going to die from it. But I think we're capable of doing it. You know, people sometimes ask me, well, what can I do? And I think there's really, you know, there's, there's a couple things, especially kids ask me a lot. Hey, what can I do about climate change? I think there's a couple of things you can do. One is, you know, when you buy things, you can buy things from companies that have a, uh, you know, a policy that are in line with, with your beliefs, you know, a sustainable energy policy. And the other thing that is much more, uh, that'll have much more of an impact is just vote. You know, vote for candidates that believe that this is an issue. Um, you know, I have a hard time understanding how people that are not scientists can disagree with the experts. You know, if I want to have an operation, I don't go to an attorney. You know, if I want to understand the law, I would go ask. I don't understand how lawyers can say, well, I just don't believe this. I have no scientific background. I have no scientific training. I've just decided to discount 97% of the experts. Yeah, what do you think is crazier? Shane's Republicans who think climate isn't happening or the people who think we didn't land on the moon? You know, I, I think the people that think we didn't land on the moon are a lot less dangerous. Um, the problem with people that think we didn't land on the moon is is and the reason I have an issue with that is because when you start questioning things that are facts, it then causes you to question, more easily question other facts. 
like climate change, like the, uh, you know, vaccines, the usefulness of, of vaccines. So, you know, and then, you know, and then it kind of calls into question the, you know, the, uh, the integrity of the 400,000 people that worked on the Apollo program. Basically, you're calling them all liars uh, and frauds. So, but I think more so it's, uh, you know, I think the more danger is in things like, you know, climate change, vaccines uh, that have more of a uh, of an impact on our lives and our children's lives. I think the way that Brandon asked the question was a little black and white. What I think, and this is something I'd like to talk to more people about, is you, you said earlier, you pay now or you pay later. I think we all know that to be 100% true. Americans especially, but I think humans generally, always make the opposite choice. We run up a credit card because we want all the benefits now and like we'll deal with the, the cost later. And now I think what we're asking them to do, and reasonably so, is pay all the costs now because I promise you the benefits later. And that's a really hard communications project. That's a very difficult point to prove. That, and not really a question, but just I sometimes wonder, how do you convince a culture that has made a habit of taking all the benefits immediately and paying all the costs down the road to pay all the costs up front? And if you do it right, if you actually succeed, you'll never actually see the benefits because what you're trying to do is avoid a problem. I agree with you 100%. I mean, and that's... Uh you know, that's why we have, uh, you know, a lot of baby boomers going into retirement with uh, no savings, no ability to su support themselves is because, you know, we've because of the credit card. You know, we've we've gotten to this uh, point in our society where people live uh, beyond their means and uh, with no, you know, no consider consideration of the, the ramifications of doing that. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. So interesting. We have normalized living beyond your means yeah. uh, and financially. And I never really thought of it before, but it is an interesting point, Shane, that I think carbon wise and pollution wise, we do the same exact mm -hmm. thing. I think it's a habit. And so politically speaking, you're saying take a vote that'll get you in trouble today because you're doing the right thing. Yeah. That's not how politicians think for the most part. But does it really get you in trouble? That's the thing. Like doing something, um, you know, making a, a significant effort, uh, what is the real cost in that? I mean, because you could say, yeah, you know, the automotive industry, as an example, might be hurt as it exists today. But that doesn't mean the automotive industry that we that would be good for the climate can't be just as good for people. You know, solar energy versus, you know, coal or other greenhouse gas producing uh, methods of developing energy. We can have I think you can have both a. Uh, you know, a clean, uh, you know, energy environment, but also have um, something that is economically uh, beneficial as well. It just might take an investment in the beginning to get there. I was going to ask you to talk a little bit more about that. When we made investments into going to the moon, there was a lot of other benefits that we got, you know, to innovation that we didn't maybe expect. Can you talk a little bit about some of those follow-on uh, benefits that happen because of the investments that we made? Absolutely. You know, when we do something that is the hardest thing to do at that time, which was going to the moon, you know, there are spin-off benefits from from doing that. Now, I, I wouldn't, I'm not one to argue that if we didn't go to the moon, we wouldn't have computers or, you know, telecommunication capability that we have today. But I, I think that where we are is much advanced because of, of the space program. Solar panels actually were made mainstream because of space exploration. Yeah, yeah. so you have those kind of uh, spin-off technologies, but 
you know, sometimes people say, hey, you know, we spend a lot of money in space. That space station cost $100 billion. And I'm like, you know, I spent a whole year on that, sp- or 500 days on that space station. There's no money there. <laughs> that money wasn't spent in space. That money was spent on Earth with high-paying jobs of people that, you know, were able to take that money, pay their taxes, send their kids to college. I mean, it's not like you're, it's not like a boat where you're dumping money into the ocean. It's uh, something that is uh, an investment in our future. So some people talk about maybe on the other extreme of climate change being so severe, so bad that we're going to have to leave Earth, that maybe we'll even have to move to Mars one day. And of course, that creates a whole debate around whether just the wealthiest will go and certainly everyone couldn't possibly. And you said that you are you support going to Mars, having humanity go to Mars. Talk a little bit about the concept of a plan B or a planet B. Yeah. Well, I think that's you know, I wouldn't say laughable because some people believe it. So I wouldn't, you know, and some of those are smart people um, that believe that it would be easier to take a planet like Mars that has basically no atmosphere and turn it into another Earth. I would propose that it's going to be a lot easier and a lot cheaper to just take care of this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know, we don't even have to take care of the planet. The planet's going to be just fine. It's us that are going to have a problem. I mean, the planet's going to recover, right? You know, in a thousand years, you're not going to see any plastic. You know, all the garbage that we've deposited on this planet in a thousand years will be gone. Now, we might be gone, too. (laughs) The planet will recover for a while, and then the sun will expand, and it'll be burnt to a crisp someday in like five billion years. But until then, I think our best option is to take care of Earth. I believe in going to Mars. We should go to Mars. There's a lot of reasons to go to Mars. We're not all going to Mars. We're not all going to that closest Earth-like planet that is in, you know, the nearest uh, solar system because it take 80,000 years to get there. Yeah, and if I'm not good with airplane turbulence, I feel like I wouldn't love the journey. That's just me. I think your point is a good one and actually one that I might steal from you because what a lot of people will say is it's arrogant to think we have that much control over Earth. It's arrogant to think that we have, you know, that we determine the fate of God's creation. I think your point is a good one. The creation will be fine. It's just yeah. a matter of what's living on it that, that might face some more challenges. That's a really a good point that I've never heard because you yeah. say, sure, it is arrogant. It will fix itself. Yeah, Earth will be fine, you know. And then, you know, in a billion years, Earth is not going to be livable anyway. You know, it's going to be destroyed by the sun in five billion, but a billion years from now, you're not going to be able to live on the, be able to live on the Earth because of, you know, all the water is going to evaporate because of the sun. But, you know, in the meantime, in the in leading up to that billion years, there's a lot we can do. And uh, if we take care of the planet we have and, you know, it, or we could not and we will just cease to exist as a, as a species. Or maybe we'll just evolve into something else that is not human-like, but something that can live on a planet filled with garbage and uh, an atmosphere of carbon dioxide. And um, I don't know. We... What, a, what an ending to this yeah, right? story of existence. <laughs> um, but it is interesting that... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know. That's your future, people. Yeah, this is a really uplifting conversation. Um, But it sounds like basically humanity's doomed. We can do it sooner if we don't get our act together or in a billion years. Options are. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully in that billion years, we'll figure out how to, you know, fly around in uh, space um, a lot quicker. Maybe there 
Star Trek will become time. a real thing. <laughs> yeah, so we, we you know, in, in uh, basically 66 years, we went from flying airplanes to landing on the moon. A billion years, we can go, go a long way. I can't even imagine what this planet's going to be like in 100 years. Hopefully, uh, it will be an amazing place and a place where, you know, people can uh, feel happy about living on, but maybe not. Unfortunately, I won't be around to see it. I might try that vanilla sky thing so that <laughs> I can wake up and then tell Shane how wrong he's been about <laughs> our climate. You got you, you to you pay for me to do it, too. Mm. Wait, no, no, no. The, the, the debates we've had, to be clear for our listeners, are not about is this a real challenge. It's I, I always tell Brandon that I genuinely don't believe, and I think most people don't, that like where I live in five years, if we don't overhaul our economy entirely today that I'm going to be living on a very different planet than I did in 2019. And I think that kind of messaging is dangerous because if in 2024 things look a lot like they look today, you've given the deniers their win. Now they can say, see, you predicted doomsday. You were absolutely wrong and we have no reason to act. Where do you live? Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. How close were you to those fires? Uh, I was evacuated because of the fires. Was your house, did your house burn down? Our house did not burn. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think most people make the connection. I don't. So you're right. Fires will become more frequent. Storms will become more frequent. But if you don't want to believe in climate change, you can say we've had storms and fires for thousands of years. And I just think it's dangerous to say it's all over in 10 years. It's done. Because then when it isn't, people, have, you've given them an excuse not to take any action, I think. Well, the worst part about that is that say you get people riled up to take action in the next 10 years, which would actually really take effect over decades to come, yeah. and you don't see those worse effects, that was that means we did it. That means it worked. And so yeah. the deniers and may the feel way, vindicated. by the way, clean air and clean water. Like, that would be amazing. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, I take exception, too, to people that say in 10 years it's all over. I think in 10 years we might not have the ability to do anything about it we're on this trajectory that you cannot uh, reverse but uh yeah 10 years i mean the, the, i've heard that comment before and i don't agree with it either but we may be at the point where we no longer have the ability to to That's control what the ipcc reports yeah. that by 2030 we have to be on track but that means having cut our emissions in half at 2030 so that means a lot of work has to happen in the next 10 years right but i wasn't really taking issue with anything you said shane i'm just more pointing out that deniers may say if nothing drastic changes hey look it wasn't real but what might have actually happened is that people did take action and just avoided the worst impacts and so it's kind of a funny communications issue really about what's happening and if shane if that happened so what is the um what is the harm though what what have you done like like you said, we, we have cleaner air, we have cleaner water. You know, there's 7 million people that die every year from pollution. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no harm. It's all benefit. My concern is just thinking politically, because that's sort of the box that I live in. I don't think we're going to take any severe action in the next five years. So if we don't take it, you know, within the next five or 10 years, and then nothing is noticeably wrong to the average voter, then they're going, okay, so I was given this warning. I didn't respond. I was obviously right because it's okay. Now, if we take major action and we clean up the air and clean up the water, then that's fantastic. And everyone wins all the time. My concern is if we don't take action and nothing is noticeably wrong, then you've vindicated in a way the point of view of those who don't want to act and can now say, your doomsday warnings are always wrong. Just stop. Yeah, but how about like, you know, in like Oklahoma, uh, the last few days, all those people that their houses were destroyed and the flooding that's existing in the the United States right now. I mean, I I think a lot of those people would say there is stuff wrong. There are things going on. I mean, people are dying from 
you know, weather events that are more severe now than we've ever seen. I saw a statistic about the wildfires in California, and it was burning the length of three football fields every second. That's insane. They've never seen anything like that. I guess you mentioned politics, Shane. I wanted to put to you, if you don't mind, you know, your twin brother, Mark Kelly, who's also an astronaut, is running for Senate in 2020. Have you ever been interested in getting into politics? Um, you know, it's something that is interesting to me. Definitely politics I'm very interested in, you know, getting into it. Um, I live in Texas. Um, I am very much a moderate. I'm an independent. I've never been a member of either party. I voted for I vote for Republicans. I voted for Democrats uh, in both uh, local and national elections. I think uh, you know some of my views are you know a little bit more right leaning. Some of them are a little bit more left leaning. So in a in a state like Texas, it's kind of a hard place to 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 win. Um, uh, certainly, there are certain areas of of Texas that maybe an independent could win, but um, it would be a real challenge. Um, well, that doesn't stop any of these 25 people from running, <laughs> so why don't you get in? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's doing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everyone's yeah, right. doing it. Yeah. yeah. Bill de Blasio can yeah. do it. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah, right. Um, but the other thing I got going for me is my brother's running, like you said, for the U.S. Senate in uh, Arizona, and I could just see how he does. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Just tag and along. And say, hey, after. how was that? You got any advice? What do you think? Or it could be like that movie Dave. You just like mm-hmm. stub in for yeah. him sometimes. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for Congress, right? So that's the problem with our with our with our whole system, right? Um, isn't that what the guy did in the? What's the guy running? For, the mayor of uh, San Antonio and his brother. Who was, oh yeah, yeah the Castro. Yeah, they yeah. kind of did those. Yeah. Switcheroo. They, 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 at least they were accused of doing the old switcheroo. <laughs> That's funny. No, we could maybe we could do that. I don't know, but um, <laughs> you, you know the whole. And I know it's uh, you know the governor's big issue too, and I'm. I, I think it's a huge issue as well is this whole gerrymandering thing because you have to basically if you're in a in a congressional district. The, and if you want to be competitive because of the gerrymandering, you gotta have to you gotta have to pander to the ex- extremes of the parties uh, to to become the nominee. And then you really you're, basically you're going out there and you're lying to people to be the the nominee. And then you have to you know pivot back to the center to win the general election. It's like you know. <sighs> I don't know. How did the system ever, ever come about? And then, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger says it's the biggest sort of crime, basically, against yeah. the American people. And how's no one spoken out against this in the past? Yeah, I think because right. it worked for whatever party. And Citizens United, too. I mean, I, I, it's beyond me how this is allowed in our in our country where you could get, you know, basically unlimited amounts of corporate money to uh, promote a candidate. Right. Um, so. Going back to your question, yeah, you know, I don't really think there's a place for you know a, 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 an independent in uh, in where I live in in Texas. Maybe someday. Yeah. Texas is turning blue. We've had this debate. It's coming. Mm. <laughs> hey, Beto. I mean, he did pretty well considering where he was running. Right? Yeah, it cost me a lot of money. Yeah, we had a Beto, lost, Beto bet. We had a bet on the podcast. I, I gave them eight points. And if, you know, the loser had to pay for dinner anywhere in L.A., yeah. and I became more and more of a 
asshole as the campaign went on, so they became more and more willing to spend my money. Mm -hmm. We had to go to Nobu and Malibu, and I think I basically, my, my first kid's not going to college anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the second yeah. two are okay yeah. for now, Sorry. I think. I but know. the cod is really, really good yeah, there. Yeah, the black, black cod. Sauce. Yeah, the black cod. Uh, well, apparently, they thought everything was good there. Yeah, we just took one of them. The wine, too. <laughs> is it... You know, we started this by asking, you know, what was it like being in space, looking back at Earth um, from a climate perspective? And so just to finish on that politics point, do you sometimes look back at humanity and say, what are we doing? Oh We're squabbling God. with each other yeah, so much. Right. Yeah, you know, there was uh, one memory I have is is flying over the uh, Mediterranean in the summertime of 2015, where it was like cloudless over Europe and, and the northern part of Africa. And the Med is this like deep blue color. It was incredibly beautiful. And then in, in the evening, I would see on the news all the refugees, like little kids, like washing up on shore. And I'm like, how is how do we allow that to happen? I mean, we can do incredible things. I'm on this $100 million, um, $100 billion space station. The mo like I said, the most complicated thing we've ever done yet. And I'm looking out at this incredibly beautiful planet with this incredibly, you know, serious problems that, uh, you know, I think we can solve if we just, you know, decide that uh, we want to solve them. And then we work together to do it. I think that's important. Uh, you know, you don't complicated things require teamwork. It requires um, not only teamwork within our country, but internationally. Uh, and it's just a matter of us putting our minds to it. Do you have a favorite space movie, like Armageddon? Like they're up on the space station, you got the Russian Yuri's up there. Like, is there is there one that you, you prefer? Uh, or that's more realistic than Spaceballs? Spaceballs. <laughs> that's the most realistic actually, one. Right? I'm, I'm just is that kidding. A documentary. Of yeah. I, think, I think I actually walked out of that in the movie theater. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I, I'm a, a Apollo 13 fan. Yeah. I think it's the most uh, realistic. I like First Man. I thought that was great. Uh, that just was recently out. I know, and they didn't renew it. This is the Sean Penn one, right? No, no, oh, no, no. The movie about the movie. Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Um, uh, the Martian's good, you know. I watched Gravity in Space. Oh, oh, wow. oh that's a trip. That'd be trippy. Yeah. It's like watching a movie of your house burning down while you're inside of it. Ugh, that would, with with I don't no way out, right? Like yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. Chris, I went to the same high school as Chris Hadfield. Oh, okay. In Milton, Ontario, of all Is places. Is it named Chris Hadfield High School now? Uh, I don't think they've actually changed the mm. name, but he's got a road named after him, yeah. so they, they did something. Yeah. Road um, is better because, you know, yeah. you don't mm -hmm. have to go visit the road. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. No demands on your time from the road. <laughs> you just say drive down it every once pretty in a while. sure it's a road to nowhere it just like connects <laughs> to other roads it's just weird um well thank you so much for coming on oh. the podcast really appreciate your time yeah my pleasure great talking to you guys yeah thank you much yeah enjoyable thanks and that is our show we hope you enjoyed the journey outside of our typical orbit of climate and politics and we hope that you'll subscribe you can find Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting platform that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. So sign up there and consider leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Speaking of appreciation, big thanks to Victoria Simon, our producer who helps make this show possible. I'm Julia Piper. Until next time.